as of right now. And again, this is partially because what the hell else am I going to do? Well, the other, what else I would do would just be not writing and that really can't happen. The way it works, just not to be too much in the weeds, but I have a publishing deal with this company here in Nashville with three of my other friends. Actually, Marty Fredrickson was my first co-write in the Nixons 20 years ago. And we started this company with two other friends. And, you know, my publisher, they need songs. You know, they need songs to go pitch to, you know, fill in the blank. I, a lot of what I do is rock. So I, I still work a, quite a, a lot with, you know, my first few cuts were Daughtry, Three Doors Down, Bowling for Soup, Jonas Brothers. But then did do country. I ended up having a, a hit song with Carrie Underwood. And then, um, but again, rock is still the sort of the bread and butter. I had a recent number one song that I co-wrote with Shinedown. So, um, so in-person writing, yeah, I mean, like, your, your gut is to say, oh, you got to be in the room so you can really see in someone's eyes and feel the song reverberate. But I mean, screw it. You know, we're just doing what we got to do. And uh, and again, I'm, I'm busy as ever. Like I said, started that publishing company in the middle of COVID, had a number one song with Shinedown in the middle of the pandemic. So, um, you know, in, in some ways, you know, I'm just rocking along. How much does that dynamic differ from songwriting? partners? I mean, is the process generally of kicking things back and forth? Is it generally the same across the board? The interesting thing is, so uh, mentioned the Nixons, you know, that, 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 that was my, that was my on-ramp to the music business, rock and roll band from Oklahoma. We get a record deal, um, tour, tour everywhere. And, um, and then, you know, dove into actual, you know, songwriting as a, you know, profession and you really do have to learn to adapt. Um, you know, I just meant the names I just mentioned. I mean, walking into a room with two members of of um, Three Doors Down or Shine Down, it's way different than walking in a room with Carrie Underwood. You know, it's ju- it just is different inherently um, by the nature of the human beings that are involved. And so, you know, you do have to sort of adapt and be, you know, be a little bit like, okay, you know, I got to wear a different kind of hat today. Whereas with the Nixons, I found it interesting to come back to the Nixons 17 years after not even speaking to a couple of the guys and writing new music. It was really cool and really liberating and, and uniquely different than writing when you're trying to get, you know, get a cut on a, on an album by some artist maybe you just met for the first time. Um, it was, I told someone the other day that really writing these new, the new batch of Nixon song was in some ways the most fun I've had writing in a while. I love what I do, but just like it was super, you know, free feeling, like do whatever the hell you want to do. Were there songs that came up over the years that you felt at the time would have been a good fit for the Nixons? For sure. In fact, I, um, uh, in fact, I just did something also during COVID because I was just, I don't know, tr- looking for stuff to do, but I released two little EPs, uh, Zach Malloy solo EPs. And what they are basically, it's called Lead Singer Syndrome, Volume 1 and Volume 2. It's basically songs that I had written that didn't find homes that I loved. And so I just said, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to release this. And a couple of them, one of them is pretty heavy rock. The other one is more singer-songwriter. And um, there's a couple of those rock songs that I definitely remember thinking, ah, oh, this would be cool for the Nixons. And it's me singing the demo. So it almost sounds like it could have been a Nixon song. Having said all that, the way 
my life works as a songwriter is I go into situations with people that want to write with me, that want to collaborate with me. And in the, in the case of the Nixons, I mean, the guys still want to collaborate with me, I hope still, but, um, but it's different, right? We're a band. So it's, there's a different dynamic when Ricky, my bass player says to me, ah, man, I don't, I don't really like what you sang on the chorus there. It didn't seem to make sense. I don't take it you know, I take it very much in stride. I don't take it as like a being disrespected as a songwriter. You know, I'm like, okay, cool. You know, cause we all, I want everyone in the band to be happy and satisfied with the music. And, um, and it's just a little bit different in, in those other cases. Cause you're, you know, you're, you're working almost like towards a goal. Whereas the Nixons were just writing. Cause we're like, let's write some rock and roll music. It was a, a directly collaborative process when the band got together and wrote music. Everybody was, it wasn't you just sort of bringing a song in from the outside. And that's right. That's right. And that's what I mean. Like that, that is a, a lot of times that's what we do as professional songwriters. You know, we come in with an idea, Hey, what do you think of this? This was more like, you know, I'd get an email and I loved getting them like a bed of music from Ricky from his cabin in utah uh ricky's the bass player jesse's the guitar player jesse then would send me a bed of music from his place i would excitedly load it into my pro tools and sing come up with stuff you know blah 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 send it to john he'd lay down some drums in a lot of cases john was great about oh dude what if we go to halftime here well that might dictate then what happens to the to the guitars and and the bass we're lucky john is um is also so the drummer for Seether. So he he sort of never went away from from being, you know, a rock and roll band dude. Where the rest of us really did, we really kind of went off and did other things. So um, it was great to have John as a part of that creative process, uh, especially having not done it in a long, long time. You mentioned earlier that there was a point when you were you said not even speaking with some of the guys. Was, did things go so wrong that you just kind of had to kind of step away from them for a while? Yes, hell yes. Now, I mean, listen, here's, here's the truth. The, the, there were some definite, you know, sort of like um, bad vibes at the end of the Nixons when we, uh, we split up in early 2000s. You know, we basically formed in the early 90s and ended in the early 2000 aughts, whatever those are called. Um, and uh, definitely, we all, we all kind of uh, it didn't end pretty. And so it took a while. People would say, I mean, I would get called and say, hey, come play this festival in Dallas, Texas or Houston, where you, you know, are kind of, that's our home market, that part of the country. And I didn't, you know, the first couple offers, I didn't even present them to the band because I knew I had, didn't want to have anything to do with that. They were specifically asking for a reunion. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so, and it just became this thing over time, eventually a dude back in Oklahoma city, our hometown basically called us all separately and said, you guys are kind of being stupid just bury the hatchets. It's been years. We did great, you know, I epic phone call with, with each member of the band, one with the bass player who I had not really talked to in 20 years. We, you know, we talked for an hour and a half, you know, and, and it was great because we used to, you know, stay up late listening to weird alien talk shows on late night radio, driving the van across America, you know? So are we talking like Art Bell? There you go. That's who. Um, so yeah, man. So it was, it was fun, you know, to sort of reconnect with these dudes that were brothers, you know, in a sort of a previous life. And then the, uh, the flip side to that is that we, we've all grown up a lot, you know what I mean? So it's a lot easier to just sort of not get your feelings hurt and not take things too, 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 to heart and not be so precious about certain things. It's like, Hey, 
this is just fun now. This is just a, we're just having a good time releasing new music for the first time in forever, playing old music for the first time in forever. What is that first conversation like when you haven't spoken to somebody that you were so close to for so long? Well, it was a lot of, um, so what's, what are you doing? Like, what's life? What, are, what is your life? You know, Ricky, what are you doing in Utah? And I'm not even following this guy on Facebook kind of situation. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and, and again, because there were certain things that went down that weren't happy, you know, there were no, there were no hugs and maybe I'll see you again someday. It was just like, we were just, suddenly we were just done. Yeah. Suddenly we were done. We, we played a lot. The Nixons toured a lot. We played an average of 300 days a year um, for a good decade or so. And so the, the other part of it was that when people would say, Oh, you must miss it for the first three, four five years, the answer was a resounding hell. No, I don't miss it at all. I love that. I still get to make music. I'm writing music with other people and that, that's good enough. And then at a certain point, again, you feel like, well, wait a second. Am I never going to sing this song that was you know, maybe the most important song of my, you know, career. Um, Cause those songs, the Nixon songs were definitely my introduction into music, you know, and working at a real studio for the first time, working with a legit producer for the first time, doing things that I now do with other younger artists. Was there some degree of frustration in, you know, you've got, you've got this big hit album, this big hit song in what, like 94, 95. I assume at some point you, you just sort of try to chase that success. I will say that I'm pretty proud of the road we took, which is, and for, you know, for deeper dive Nixon's fans, they'll kind of understand what I'm, what I'm about to say. But, you know, the first album was very much young dudes, you know, in a van touring anywhere that they would let us come play. You know, we would play a pizza shop, you know, and 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 then go play the record store the next afternoon before our gig, you know, in, you know, small town, East Texas. And then, you know, there was this youthful rock and roll energy, smash guitars, light the stage on fire, um, very in your face rock and roll. Our biggest hit as, you know, as fate would have, it was not in your face rock and roll. It was more of a mid-tempo ballad um, such as life. But on the second and third album, I'm really proud of what we, we tried to do, which is, you know, we had, we would, we would try things. We would try, you know, a, a song in, you know, acoustic driven, bouncy, uh, you know, six, eight, you know, or, or just, just try to think a little bit outside the box. And yeah, I mean, I, and I think that, you know, I'm proud of us for that sort of that catalog of music that we created again, that we left and, and, and we're, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say able to come back to, uh, it, it's been refreshing, but, um, no, we didn't do that. And, and again, you know, in some ways, I guess you could probably argue that maybe we should have more <laughs> because we never, we never quite had the success that Sister, the, the song Sister had. Um, our second album yielded a, a, a top five rock hit called Baton Rouge that is um, still one of our more popular ones, at least in the live set and stuff like that. So, you know, but, but again, Baton Rouge stylistically is completely 180 different than you know, it's, it's totally different than sister it was. So yeah, we were, you know, we were able to sort of push those things. And I also will say that I've, I've been able to, to, to sort of recreate that as a songwriter. I mean, I literally have had sad song by Carrie Underwood. That was a hit that's about dying. And I've had really stupid songs that I wrote that ended up on a Blake Shelton album about getting some. I mean, it's, you know, so there, there, all points in between can sort of be hit. And, um, 
And that's also because I'm lucky. I, I've gotten to work with some talented people. So if I walk into a room with some dude that's in a quirky mood that day, it might end up being a little bit of a quirky song. The math or the dynamic changes once you do have that big hit. I mean, before that, it, you know, you can just be a bunch of dudes in their 20s in a band having fun. And then all of a sudden, especially like we're talking, you know, early to mid 90s. So like the, the machinery of the record labels that are behind you must just completely change the dynamic of being in a band. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Labels, um, you know, it's that thing, you know, when you're younger, you think, you know, that that's the goal, right? I'm going to get signed to a major label. Going to be a rock star. Yeah. And, and, and listen, we did it. And, and I'm very, very proud of us for getting, the, getting to that point, being, you know, small town dude from Oklahoma uh, and, uh, you know, playing frat parties and sorority parties at OU. Four years later, we're opening for Kiss at Madison Square Garden. So I'm, I'm proud of, of a lot of those things we did. And it does ch- definitely change the way you, you, you sort of your point of view to the, to the, the musical landscape labels on the other hand. And unfortunately I've seen this a lot more than I, I, I wish, but they can, they can, they can be a force of not good. You know, I've seen, I've seen plenty of bands get signed, you know, massive bidding war and finally label XYZ lands this band of the moment. And then I talked to the band a year later and they're still writing and the label's still waiting to hear the first, if they've written their first single. And I just see the life being sucked out of these artists that, because a label is what it is. It, they have to make money. They spend a lot of money signing that band. You know, they beat out the other four labels that were interested in them. So they, they were careful. They were not going to take chances. So I get it. It's their business. It's their, you know, A&R guy that, that signed that band, that signed the Nixons. The Nixons go down, crash and burn he's probably getting fired, you know? So I'm not blaming labels or A&R guys. It's, it's, it is their job, but there are definitely good ones out there and, and maybe not so good ones out there. I'm assuming that in a lot of ways, uh, the once a band gets back together, there isn't that same sort of pressure. I, I assume that, that, that the Nixons in 2020, 2021 are not facing the same sort of pressure that they would have been in the mid nineties. That's, that's incredibly true. And also probably why it was so fun you know, to do this new music, like to, to just be like, I am, would be lying if I told you that I wouldn't be extremely you know, happy if, if someone, if suddenly, you know, one of our songs from the EP was used in a movie and it, it charted on the rock charts. That'd be great. I, I, you know, who wouldn't love that? But that is not what it, that's not what it's about anymore for the Nixons. It's about, you know, unfortunately, it was going to be about going and having some fun touring. And even, you know, this year, you know, we, we, in, I remember September, October, my agent called and said, Hey, we got offered this summer tour in 2021, you know, fast forward to January 3rd, 4th, 5th, it got canceled, you know? So, so it's all about that. Now it's all about just getting out there, having some fun. I mentioned, I've got a son to you that's at school at NYU. I got another kid in college in Boston. And um, so, I mean, my kids are gone. I'm ready to go out and, and rock, rock again, you know? So, uh, so it's super bummer, but at the same time, as you said, yeah, there's no pressure, man. We're, we're having fun. The new music was really, you know, a blast to write, a blast to work on. I was looking back at some of the blog posts on your site, which I, I think the past couple of years have been about a rate of, of one per year, it seems like. Um, and a couple of years ago, you noted that your son was born on the day the Nixons began to break up, which I thought was a really interesting way of putting it, which, you know, points to two things. I mean, one, you know, 
the sort of the responsibilities of like growing up and maybe taking some of this stuff more seriously, but also began to break up implies to me that it was kind of a lengthy process. Yeah, listen, I mean, it's, it's, it is sad, you know, uh, the way bands break up the way the way it can end for bands you know probably god it's in the much the same way divorce right i mean it's 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 a separation that's not too dissimilar and yeah it was an interesting time by the way i need to do more blogs you got time zach that's all i'm saying i'm gonna i'm gonna write one tonight dude um no so yeah it, it was it was an interesting trajectory you know that that I will say that um, maybe even in that same blog, I mentioned how weirdly full circle it was to look over on the side of the stage and see my two teenage sons who had never seen me doing this, you know, stage diving into the crowd at a, at a festival in Houston and, 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 and doing my best to, um, you know, uh, have a stiff neck the next day from banging my head. So it, in some ways it was full circle, but yeah, it's, it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing when you're, you're you're getting impassioned phone calls by band member, you know, saying, "Look, if this doesn't go down this way, then I'm out." You know, and meanwhile, my wife's getting ready to go into labor. You know what I mean? So it's it's it was an interesting trajectory, certainly to live through that. But then, as you pointed out, yeah, I mean, it was a, a sort of a, you know, what's the 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 Robert Frost, you know, thing, you know, it's, it's, it's two past diverging in the wood. That was it, man. That was it yeah. for me. To be honest with you, it was a huge thing because I was able to say, yeah, you know what? I'm not going to go out on the road and be away from this kid. These then two kids. Um, and I, and I sort of was able to create a career for myself where, you know, I write songs every day. And if I want to be done at three, I can be done at three and go watch, you know, go watch my kid play lacrosse. Or, or, you know, whatever. For a lot of people, obviously not changing, but sort of transitioning a career, you know, again, you're obviously sort of still in that same universe of being a musician, but uh, it's it's a hard transition for a lot of people to make. At, at what point in the process of, you know, you sort of realizing that the band was no longer a viable entity, did you realize that writing songs for and with other people was something that you could actually do to sustain yourself. There are a couple absolute um, touchstones that, that I, that I think back to, which is one Nixon's last album, speaking to labels, not hearing a single flew me to LA to work with Marty Fredrickson. Um, and, and that is when I realized that songwriting as a job, as an entity was a thing, you know, I just didn't even know it. Uh, and so meeting Marty, understanding, oh, this guy, you know, this is a thing that people do. <clears throat> the band splintering, I released a solo record and a series of things happened. My solo record, uh, right, at the, right around the time my solo record came out, a friend of mine, Jarrett from the band Bowling for Soup, was sort of experienced a little writer's block. He called, come down to Texas and let's write. I ended up getting five songs on that particular album. And within the same year, one of the songs on my solo record got heard by an A&R guy creating the first Daughtry record and uh, Chris Daughtry uh, and, and, and they retooled it, rewrote some stuff on it and released it. So the, uh, I had a cut with Bowling for Soup and Daughtry around the same time. And that's when I thought, 
okay, this is, this is a thing that I can do. It's not been easy. It's, it's still a grind every day, but, but, but I got lucky. I really did. I had a friend in Bowling for Soup. We had taken them out on one of their first tours. So I, hell, I don't know. He probably felt like he owed me or something, you know, but, but just, just stumbling into a couple of cuts with them, one of which became a top 40 uh, song. Um, and, uh, and then at the same time, like I said, landing a, a song on a Daughtry album that, ended up selling 6 million records. So th- those were sort of like key things that, that sort of were light bulb moments. So you had a solo record. So you, so you were, you were doing performing on your own. Um, was it difficult to step away from that and to really just be operate almost exclusively behind the scenes? No, not at all. In fact, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, we were in Tulsa at the time, Oklahoma, uh, moved here 10 years ago, but I had a studio in Tulsa that I loved. I went in every day and just, made music, created stuff, did release a couple little, you know, almost vanity projects as a solo artist. And then, um, and then just, no, I really, really embraced that whole, you know, Hey, you want to fly me out to San Francisco to sit on a rehearsal room floor with band, you know, this band, and then down to LA to go to SIR and work with another rock and roll band. And, and um, I loved it. And, and, and again, because of the nature of what I do, sort of you looked up high chart of my song, my cuts that I've had over the years, it's country, you know, pop, rock, probably pretty equal. When I, I would say when I moved to Nashville, it was probably not equal at all, probably 80, 20, but it's pretty equal now. And I, I do believe that that is healthy for me personally as a songwriter. I have great friends that sit every day down on Music Row and just try to get a Kenny Chesney hit. That's, that's, that's all they really do. I couldn't do that. You know, I, I love it that, you know, my discography is heavy as hell song on Hailstorm album, you know, ballad on Hailstorm's previous album, Skillet, Anthem, Shine Down, but then Carrie Underwood, Tim McGraw, Blake Shelton. I, I, that stuff I think probably serves me well. I think I guess is the best way to put it just because I think I would go nuts trying to write the same damn thing. Was the Carrie Underwood song, was that kind of your entree onto writing country music? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. They flew me out. Um, we j- hadn't moved here yet, but we were preparing to move here. And um, yeah, walked into a room with Carrie. She's from Oklahoma, um, <clears throat> had actually seen the Nixons play many, many, many years before. And um, and so there was a little icebreaker there, you know, and, and she's at this point a massive star. And yeah, got lucky. I, you know, I had a lot of a, a lot of a lot of advisors and, and mentors that were saying, hey, when you go into a Nashville songwriting session, don't think you have to write about country stuff. You know, you don't have to work, write about your truck. Yes. Yeah, sitting on the river and on the tailgate of a truck drinking a Budweiser. You, you don't have to do that. You just, you know, you want to try to w- whatever the genre, whatever the artist write a good song. I mean, that, that sounds kind of cliche, but, but, but to answer your question, that was absolutely an, an, an entry into to Nashville. I was able to then sort of move in and out of several other rooms and, and, and work with other artists all because of good old Carrie. How difficult is that transition to being a rock guy for basically all of your career to writing a, a country song? I mean, I, you know, you're from, you're from Oklahoma, obviously there's a big tradition of, of country and, and, and folk music, but, it, but is it hard to navigate an entirely different genre like that? Yeah. I mean, it certainly can be. And, and I definitely can feel like in some cases I've been in a, a songwriting room where <clears throat> at any given moment, I might feel a little bit out of my depth. Like, wait, what am I doing in here with these yeah. dudes? No, but you're not like writing Kendrick Lamar songs, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You're right. So, so yeah, don't, 
probably don't hire Zach to go uh, try to collaborate with Skrillex. Probably not, you know, but, but I mean, if you're talking about, uh, you know, a tearjerker ballad, you know, that Carrie Underwood's going to sing, you know, the song Sister, which was our biggest hit, was about, you know, missing my sister and, and, and relying on the memories to sort of, keep, you know, sustain you till the next time you're together, you know, that whole thing. So, and, and by the way, Carrie said it to me. She said, I love that song you wrote for David Cook. And I love that song that you, you know, the Nixons had when I, you know, that I saw you guys play, blah, blah, blah. So in some ways, she probably came to me for a certain thing. If you catch my meaning, you know what I mean? She wasn't saying, hey, manager, get me a song. I mean, let's do a writing session with Zach Malloy to see how it goes, because I bet you he's got some really good ideas about Chevrolet trucks. You know what I mean? She's not really singing that either. She wants to try to sing heartfelt things. And so, yeah, it was, um, you know, it, it was a transition, but but not a not a not a giant one. You mentioned the song Sister Obviously, a very earnest song. You know, I've, I've heard, I I listened to some interviews with you, and, it, and it's funny that you know that like most people assume that it was that your sister had died because like why why would anyone just write this earnest of a song about a sibling that's still around that they still miss? You know, certainly in in that era of music, it was a level of earnestness that you weren't really getting from a lot of uh, ra- radio hits at the time. I mean, was it ever hard to kind of be? that earnest when everybody around you is kind of is too cool for school. I can tell you that the Nixons were never too cool for school. It was probably something that we should have maybe been um, a little more cognizant, you know, a little bit more aware, hyper aware of, but because now we were, we were always very much hard on our sleeves, you know, like, so, so this was just a thing, you know, like we're writing and wrote a song that's very unabashedly about racism. And we've had another song that's, literally the word FOMA, which is a word invented by Kurt Vonnegut, who was my favorite writer. Uh, that means lies that people tell themselves to make, make themselves feel better. And um, there wasn't a lot of that going on either, you know, in, in that type of, gr- you know, grunge, post grunge nineties rock, you know, I love stone temple pilots, but I very rarely knew what the hell he was talking about, but, but, but I don't care. I, I mean, interstate love song, give it to me anytime. I got it. You know, and then meanwhile, you know, there were bands that would kind of go down the road. You know, we, we got the opportunity to tour with, with Radiohead and I always thought that he was pretty well until he stopped making sense to a certain extent. Um, he, uh, he was pretty earnest, you know, like a song like creep was pretty, pretty heartfelt and high and dry. And I loved that stuff. I loved, you know, I got the chance to, to see, you know, Pearl Jam very, very early and, and, you know, Jeremy being about a kid that, you know, in a classroom in in Texas that he had read about. I appreciated those kind of things. So no, it wasn't hard for us because it was just whatever, it was just what we did. And probably being in Oklahoma helped us in some ways. You know what I mean? Like, I, I wonder if, you know, in a different universe, if, if the Nixons, you know, ex, you know, emerged out of Seattle or out of Athens, Georgia at a certain time or out of the, you know, <clears throat> Sunset Strip, I wonder, would we have been a little bit more like looking around going, oh, we better do this. We better be this way. We better be this way. We had nothing in Oklahoma. We had the Chainsaw Kittens and the Flaming Lips and that was it. And those bands were just weird and cool and, and you know, they weren't really like a, uh, an influence to us other than I loved them and I still do. And I'm friends with, with members of each. We didn't, we didn't, we were just dudes in Oklahoma. We literally wrote that first album in 
a garage at Ricky off Ricky's, you know, bedroom in Norman, Oklahoma with no outside influence at all. Now, once we signed to a label, they definitely weighed in, you know, of course, but, um, but to a certain extent, you know, we were pretty insulated and we were just kind of doing our thing. The Flaming Lips being an obvious counterexample to this and that I think Wayne is still in, in Oklahoma City. But at that point, you know, if you wanted to, to break into the music industry, you would have moved to like New York or LA. Do, do you think that there was an advantage from being based out of a place like Oklahoma that was so far away from either coast? I do. I, I do. For the reasons I just alluded to, but also... You know, I got to say, we kind of came out of the scene um, within the same sort of year or so, give or take. We got signed, a band called The Toadies got signed, uh, Tripping Daisy got signed, Deep Blue Something got signed. The, all those bands I'm mentioning were from Dallas, and a couple other bands got signed from Dallas. We were almost like uh, from Del- from Dallas, Texas by by proxy. You know, we you know we were, you know, two and a half hours north uh, is where our home base was but we really did sort of break out of that scene but and did always stay in Oklahoma in fact the two of the other guys are still in Oklahoma John is in you know like I mentioned in Seether but he's still based in Oklahoma and I think it did help us for the reasons that I told you mentioned creatively but it was also just it was just cool to be you know like we were the biggest band to have been signed out of Oklahoma in many years and man, that city, that state, North Texas, they really embraced us. And, and sort of like, that was a big, big deal for us. You know, we could, we could have these labels fly in to see us play a showcase. And it was, you know, a sold out show, of, you know, of 3000 people. I've been in experiences where bands are, are going to f- get flown to LA to showcase for Mr. Label Guy at the Viper Room at 4 p.m. I mean, that's just you know, that, there's nothing there's nothing cool about that in fact I, i'll back up further and say that our first showcase we ever did was cbgb's in new york city um at 6 p.m before the doors open for two label execs who passed of course they passed we were all alone on a you know a legendary stage but an empty room you know it was uh, luckily we got to play cbs to a packed house a couple years later but yeah man our experience being from oklahoma on many levels was probably, yes, as you put it, hugely beneficial. As I told you earlier, I'm in New York and I, I, I went to CB, CBGB's a few times before it closed. And like, I understand why it's historic. It's not really romantic in the same way. It's, it was a shithole, you know? <laughs> so I, I imagine that like there, there must've been something kind of depressing about that experience of just playing like with essentially two people in a room and that kind of run down club on the Bowery. I will say this, that, that you are exactly right. Like I'll never forget being backstage being like, where are we, man? This is like, I am certain that there have been murders and all kinds of shit that's gone down back here. But I will say this, that many years later uh, up in New York city with my young, then young kids, I don't know if you'll remember this, but there are occasionally, well, New York's just this way in general, but we were Googling things to do, touristy things to do with, I was going to go around the city with my two boys. There was a rock and roll hall of fame pop-up uh, exhibit in some part of New York city that, that had a bunch of cool stuff in it, like John Lennon's glasses. And, and, but it also had the awning from CBGB's, you know, with the, what did it say? Um, fug or whatever. 
And so, dude, to pose with my two young sons next to the awning of this venue that I played many years before was awesome. And yes, very romantic, as you put it, in terms of a rock and roll thing. But no, being in that place on that stage, even when it was packed, we actually opened for Joan Jett there many years later. And it was awesome. It was just, it was an awesome, awesome place. But you're right. Almost in theory, more than in actual practicality. As we said before, they arrived as the band was on it on its way out. And, you know, you said that they hadn't quite experienced the the Nixon's thing or the band thing until uh, the reunion. Do you get a sense that they kind of grasp how like weird and uniquely cool of a thing that you were able to do was? Probably, probably not fully. Um, although my young son is, is trying to do follow in footsteps and do music and already figuring out how hard it is. Um, the other one's smarter. He's doing physics. Uh, so, uh, no, but I think that they probably seeing those reunion shows probably did, you know, sort of, they probably did sort of get it. Uh, like I remember talking to my, my youngest Jude and he was just saying, we played this place in Dallas called trees. And this was our first full show back in eight, 17 years, sold out show packed fans singing every word to pretty much every song. And Jude told me the next day, I remember, you know, you know, it's a feel good moment for a dad, for a parent, you know, of course, to be like, wow, dad, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't, I like, I just didn't know that part of, of you that you have whatever 1200 people in this room that, are, that know, you know, that we, we played one song that we hardly ever played called Gabriel and people were singing every word to that song. And we weren't, we were thinking about not even putting that song in the set list. So yeah, I mean, they, they, they've been able to see that part of it. And also, by the way, listen, they've always known that their dad doing something a little bit different, you know, just, just because of the nature of what will help the way I look, the way I act, what I, the way, you know, my, my whole life. And, and I think also, by the way, they've, they've appreciated the songwriter part of it um, even more so in, in later years as they've both, you know, been both done music. One now is aspiring to do it, uh, you know, in, in the real world. As somebody who's seen, obviously firsthand how difficult the music industry is, I assume throughout your career, uh, obviously, you know, you've had more success than others, but you, you've been on all sides of it. Where do you like, when your kid wants to get into this thing, how much encouragement do you offer and how much warning do you give them? Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a great, that's a great, um, that's a great question that I really don't even know if I know the the best answer for it. You just kind of do your best in all form, all parts of parenting, you know, but, but certainly he has a unique perspective as he does enter into music. I didn't, my dad was a civil engineer. My mom was a, you know, stay at home mom. Um, that, that, you know, lo- they loved music, but it, the, the, there was no frame of reference. Jude has met, like, you know, well, the Jonas Brothers came over and hung out and, and, and ate pizza and jumped on our trampoline, you know, at, at our house. And, and, you know, they've been in the studio where you would look around and you'd see these two small children, ages, whatever, eight and six. And meanwhile, you know, all four members of Bowling for Soup have 1000 tattoos between the four of them, you know, so they've they've been around music and, and, and around that world. And so probably that helps a little bit. The other cool thing is that I have to say, um, and I don't know what part of New York you're in. Uh, Queens, Astoria. 
Queens. Okay. Yeah. So, so being, um, my wife's small business took her to New York, uh, occasionally such that we were in New York and LA probably three, four times a year, their whole life. Um, and so, you know, being in New York, even uh, two years ago to tour NYU, and then we went to Brooklyn to see, um, to see, uh, a, a rock band play, um, and, and, and t- to meet their manager, you know what I mean? Like that most kids, aren't, that's not happening for most kids to meet, you know, one of the biggest managers in rock and roll and to have him be saying to Jude, here's my cell, call me when you get to town, if you end up coming here, you know what I mean? So there, there are just certain things that, that he's got. I will also say that, um, he's also kind of going his own way. Like his, his brand of music is not necessarily something that I do or do very well. So, um, so in some ways good for him. And I, I applaud that for any young artist to just, you know, sort of try different shit. Your own parents, they, they they didn't really have a frame of reference. I I do. I think your what your grandfather was a musician. Is that right? Yeah. By the time I got around, by the time I became aware as a human, he had played, you know, or opened for, you know, Ernest Tubbs and, and you know, for Johnny Cash and huge, huge things, you know. But but by the time I, you know, was noticing what he did, it, he was playing, you know, the the Fourth of July Festival at the park down in small town. But it was still badass. It was still cool as hell. And, you know, he you know, I've got um, his nineteen fifty five Martin D18 guitar got handed down to me. So it's. It's his musical sort of legacy is still something I, I'm very, that's very important to me, but, um, but he wasn't giving me much advice on how to make it in a loud, sweaty rock and roll band, but yeah, music's in music's in the blood in some way, but, uh, but yeah, and it was a cool thing to have that there. Did your parents think it was a crazy thing for you to pursue? For sure. Yeah. I mean, now I'm, I'm a little bit different than a lot of my, uh, my pals, they're singers in rock bands. Uh, I actually graduated from college. I got my degree um, in political science, which I've not used since the last day of class. Um, Come in handy these days, I think. Or, or maybe I have used it and, and I just don't know it. But, um, but yeah, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I sort of joke about I was headed to law school. It was like literally going, was in, was, was you know, talking about housing. And at the last minute, I just said to my dad, I remember the phone call, I'm going to give this music thing a try. Um, our running joke is he's like, so how's, how's that turning out for you uh, 20, 25 years later? But no, I mean, they were pretty supportive. Um, I mentioned this to someone else the, the, the other day that they, you know, they flew up to New York city to watch their kid play at Madison square garden. And there they were in the audience, you know, rock horns in the air with their Nixon's t-shirts on. Um, and uh, yeah, so they, they, they have been extremely supportive. And, uh, but I mean, I'm certain that at the beginning they were kind of like, ah, this is just a phase, you know. That call, when you're on this path, when you, you've gone to college and, you know, and obviously if you've gotten to, into law school, you know, you've got some future ahead of you. Do you remember what it was that really tipped you over the edge that this was something that you had to, you had to give a shot to before, you know, get, giving up the dream? I, um... <laughs> Not only do I know exactly what tipped me over the edge, I, 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 I can tell you exactly what, what, what it was. So this is actually, this is what happened. I kind of lied. I did gave you a different version of the story and good for you for digging a little bit because we got offered a record deal by an independent label that was based in Dallas, Texas that went bankrupt 
less than a year and a half later. That's what it took. That's all it took. And, and in hindsight, it was stupid. I mean, what, what, what the hell are you thinking? You know, you're going to base this massive life decision on a little tiny label that's going to release one Nixon's EP and then kind of cease to exist, which is exactly what happened, but that's all it took. And then for whatever, you know, fate, luck, the claws were sort of in me, I, I guess, at that point. And so there was no turning back. You get one chance. You know, it, it, it would have, I don't know that you could have gone to law school and then had a successful music career. Like you, you're able to make crazy decisions in your, you know, early or mid twenties that you, you can't later in life. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, except when your kids then go to college, you're an empty nester. You can still go be in a rock band, I guess. Sure. But you have, you have the infrastructure to, no, to I be got in a rock you. band. And, you're exactly right. You know, those, yeah. those, those, and by the way, that's the beautiful part of it. You know, that's the beautiful part of, of my kid that I just talked about. And my older kid who's, you know, going down a completely different road, but it's super exciting to hear him talking about, yeah, I just applied for an internship with this company that makes these balls that go into rooms that take pictures for three, six. I mean, I, I just stopped listening to the, the physics major halfway through most conversations, but it's cool, right? These are young dudes that are, that are, right there right at the beginning and it's it's cool to, it's fun to watch and and it and it you know it it was what it was again it was a label that really if i would have known better i wouldn't have done it but you said it it's the it's the one little thing that tipped the scale after you have the conversation with your band members and you know after everybody's kind of getting along do you regret not having picked up the phone sooner yeah sure i mean it, you know you can't you live in that, you know, you can't sort of like, but, but certainly, man, I mean, listen, you know, on multi-levels and I, and it's not, I know it's not about, it's not all about money, but for years I, I do write songwriting sessions uh, occasionally with Emerson Hart from Tonic and uh, Kevin Griffin from Better Than Ezra. Uh, we're, we're friends and, and, and like their love their families and all that stuff. Both of them were like, what are you doing? Why, why are you the Nixons not playing at least a couple shows a year? It's just, just there. It's just right there for go make a little bit of money, have a little bit of fun, you know, re-engage those fans that wonder where that, what, what, what ever happened to the Nixons. Now I will say this, that for me personally, and I can't speak for the other guys, but for me personally, I mentioned to you that we were asked to, to do shows, you know, starting probably, four years after or five years after we went away and it was just a hard no for many, many years um, until it wasn't until it was like, but you know what? I'm going to talk to, you know, Jesse. Okay. Good talk. I'm going to go talk to John. Good talk. And then go talk to Ricky, which was the hardest one, which was the one that was the, it was, it was the most bitter embittered, you know, back in the, when, when we split, um, and he's, he probably is still bitter about some of the things that went down. And, um, and, but, but none of us are really hanging on to that anymore because why would we? I mean, it's, 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 it is what it is. And it's just now, it's just a lot of fun. But I do regret it only because it, it, we would have had the chance to do more shows. And uh, maybe we'd be on EP number two or full length album number, you know, number two or, or whatever. We've only released five new songs, six, the vinyl has a bonus track on it. And that's kind of like, you know, and on some levels, that's kind of slacking. I mean, we are, I'm a, I'm a damn songwriter 
for God's sakes. We should have more than five, six songs. But again, it is what it is. And I'm proud of those songs and proud of the release. And so we're, we're just sort of powering through now. Uh, your timing sucks. When it comes to like having momentum for a reunion, I, I don't know if you could have picked worse timing. Um, you know, obviously like the inability to actually like play together puts a, a, a big damper on things. But do you get the sense that the band is just kind of it's just together now, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a thing. You guys, you guys will get back together and tour and continue to play and release records from now on. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, we're, um, I think probably our, our girl that introduced us mentioned, we're doing this live stream February 19th um, that uh, I would encourage people to check out because I, I, you know, this is, gosh, it never sounds good to talk about yourself like this, but John's a badass drummer. He's just a great drummer. The Ricky and Jesse have only gotten better at their particular things. I, I've tried to work hard to build the vocal cords back up and it's going to be a great show. It's going to be a couple songs that we hadn't played, we, that we did not play in the, the reunion shows previously. So literally two songs that have not been played in 20 years. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the songs that people know, uh, <clears throat> along with some little interviews in between, and I would encourage people to watch it because, because yeah, we are going to be around. I mean, because why not? You know, because the thing is, this is that we get, you know, you get random phone calls. And again, not so much now, but a friend in another band from the 90s is going to do a tour later in the year and just ab- out of the blue, direct message on Instagram. Here's my cell, called him, come and do these dates with us. And, and we're going to do it if the dates end up happening. And so, yeah, to answer your question, why why not? Why not just have it there? And the, the, here's the worst that can happen. And this has happened that people have said, hey, can you come play this festival in upstate New York? And we couldn't. We just couldn't because Cedar was in the studio recording their latest album or whatever, whatever the case was. So yeah, it's always going to be there um, until, until I guess until it, you know, it's not fun anymore or I can't physically get on stage, I guess. 